Well, please turn your Bibles uh, to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be in beginning in verse 1, and um, we'll continue through verse 3. Genesis is right after the preface, uh, so you'll find that there in your Bibles. Um, a few weeks ago, I recently read a quote. It's an old quote from perhaps uh, eight or nine years ago. It's from a well-known philosopher of our day. And he articulated what he understood to be the meaning and purpose of life. And this is what Kanye West had to say. He said, the point of life is getting stuff done and being happy. Though fitting with his brand at the time, stuff wasn't exactly the word that he used, but I think he was on to something. Um, I think he was on. I chuckled about it, but I thought, you know, he's not entirely wrong. I mean, sure, as Christians, we would want to be clear about the kind of stuff that we're supposed to be doing, and we'd want to articulate clearly what it is that would bring us uh, great joy, where where happiness would actually be found. But uh, he's on to something. Because we were made to do something, and that thing that we do ought to bring us joy. Uh, We see this in the answer to the first question in the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We're to do something and to know joy in it. See, we're all asking questions of purpose and meaning. We all long for meaning. We want to know that our lives have reason, that they have value, that they have direction. Right? We want to know what it is as people that we're supposed to do, and we want to know how to be happy doing it. And so as we come to God's word, it should not surprise us if it is in fact God's word and it's telling us about himself, about the universe and about us that even from the very first page we might begin to see what life is all about. And so before we jump into this text, I want to help us be able to hear and listen for it. When we come to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, oftentimes we set ourselves up to miss the main point of the passage. You see, we come to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with all kinds of questions that quite frankly the Bible isn't necessarily trying to answer. And often those questions are are scientific um, in nature, right? Like, how old is the earth? How can there be a day before the sun and the moon um, were created? How big was the tree when God first planted it? How do dinosaurs fit in? So forth. All of these are good questions, questions that we should pursue, and questions we should pursue through good and honest science. But we do need to realize that by overly focusing on these type of questions, we hinder our ability to discern the primary question that the text is answering for us. The question that the text is answering, the primary question, is a theological question. That is, what are we to believe concerning God and what does God require of us? Now, Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the Bible doesn't say anything about natural revelation because it does. And I'm certainly not saying 
that the Bible and science are contradictory in some way, they are not. What I am saying is that when we come to Genesis 1 and 2, we must position ourselves as listeners to discipline ourselves, to set aside these presuppositions that we bring to the text about what the text should be saying to us, about the questions it should be answering. We must learn to discern the question from the text and look for that answer. And be content by not having the questions to our, or the answers to our other questions, by not having them answered. Be content with that. And so if you've been doing the Bible study leader training over the last four weeks, that, that's my free contribution to the class. There you go. As we read Genesis 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 3, this is what it's about. It's about worship. It's about worship. The main point of it all is that God is enthroned as the king. He has created his holy sanctuary, and he has come to dwell in it with his people so that we might live for him and we might live with him. Perhaps I could summarize it in this way. We were made for worship. And when I talk about worship, I'm not just talking, talking here, hands raised, like all three of you. Right? I'm not just talking about this. I'm talking about a life lived to the glory of God, submission to Him. So as we read this passage, I want you to keep that in mind. Hear the word of the Lord beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be lights, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that he gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heaven and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And thus far in the reading of God's word, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, before we jump in, I recognize there is a lot in this passage, in these 34 verses, and I'm not even going to pretend to take up all the detail that's in it. Uh, what I am going to do, if the Lord will help us, is to focus on the main idea, the primary points of this opening text of the Bible. The first line of the Bible sets up the story that's about to be told, and it also sets up the tone and the theology of it. It says, in the beginning, God. That's the tone and theology of it. God. He's God. There are more references to Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for God, in this section of Scripture than there are verses. Right? God. He's the point. It's about Him. He's the eternal king, the supreme ruler, the one who rules and reigns over all of his creation. He is the self-existent one, the self-justifying one, the self-attesting one. As we will discover later in the book of Exodus, this Elohim, this God, he is Yahweh, the great I am. Our very lives begin with him, they are sustained by him, and we have our end in him. In the beginning, God. 
In the first act, at least as it relates to time and creation, of this great king is that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there are two ways to understand this opening line. The first is a summary verse. The idea is that God created everything. And, and, and this is just a summary in verse 1 of the detailed account of that creation that's about to unfold. The other option, which is the way I understand the text, is that this is the first event, not simply a summary of the whole thing. That God here, we're being told, created everything, matter, the stuff of creation, if you will. And verse 2 is actually uh, describes what that creation was like afterwards. What's happening here in these first two verses, it's, we're being set up to to know that the main, this is the backstory, if you will, to the main story, right? If you think about a TV show, I mean, think about TV episodes that come on and you, you turn it on and it, some of them have this sort of glimpses, sort of a, it goes back and kind of catches you up, these highlights from previous episodes. And the point of that is to, to help you understand the context in which this main story of this episode is being told. And that's what's going on here. Verses 1 and 2 is the backstory, and the real story, the, the main story, if you will, actually begins in verse 3. One of the ways that we know that the main story in verse 3 is, is that there's this pattern that we see that begins in verse 3. You can see it if you look for yourself at the beginning of kind of each, each line. It says, and God said, and God saw, and God separated. Verse 5 says God called, but the Hebrew is still, and God called. And there was, and on and on and on it goes. You see the pattern, right? There's this conjunction, and... At other times, you'll see a but, a so, then, those type of things. There's this subject, and then there's this verb. It's a Hebrew construction that's used in, he, in, in Hebrew narratives. And the point is, it helps you understand where the story is beginning, where it ends, and it keeps the story moving forward. So God created, and that creation was without form. There was darkness, this clouded in darkness. Everything was covered in water and the, the Spirit of God, it hovered it all. And then, and then at some point, the story begins. God said, let there be lights. And the world begins to take its form. In day one, God creates the light in order to create the period of a day. He then establishes a firmament in the heavens to separate the heavens and the waters. And then he gathers the waters together to create this dry land that would be full of plants of all kinds. On the fourth day, God placed in this firmament the sun and the moon and the stars. And then God fills the sky, you know, with the birds, things that fly, filled the waters with the things that swim, filled the land with living creatures, beasts, including man all that he created on the sixth day. And then, then we have the seventh day. Now I'm gonna cut straight to the chase, okay? Day seven is the point, okay? Day seven is the point. When we say we're gonna read Genesis one, we should never say that. We should say we're gonna read Genesis one, verse one through two, verse three, because the seventh day is the main point. 
And there's a lot of reasons that we come to this conclusion, and I'm just going to name a few. And there's a couple times in this sermon that I'm going to dump a lot of information on you. I'm sorry, but I want you to see it. I want you to understand it because it is worth sort of this mental exercise of, of getting it. First, as we're reading along in this passage, we get to this conclusion statement uh, in chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. Now, syntactically, this is just serving to, to, to summarize the first six days. But it's also trying to help set apart the seventh day. It's as if the writer of Genesis sort of took his cursory highlight of the seventh day and he hit control B, right? He made it bold typeface. He wants you to see it. He wants it to stand out. And then there's this, as you're reading it, there's this threefold repetition of the seventh day, right? And as Bill has taught us before, these threefold repetitions are significant in the Hebrew Bible. The seventh day. The seventh day. The seventh day. Right? You get it? Then there's these, all these literary features in the entire passage that point us to day seven. The first sentence of the Hebrew Bible is seven words. The entire narrative is made up of seven paragraphs. The days themselves, they're actually in two groups of three. They correspond to one another, all of them, except guess which one? The seventh day. What do I mean by they correspond to one another? Well, in the first three days, God fills, he, he creates these spaces, if you will. And the, um, the days four, five, and six, he fills those spaces. Day one, he creates light in order to establish days. On day four, he fills that with the sun and the moon and the stars. On day two, he creates the sky and the waters. Day five, he fills them with the birds and the swimming things. On day three, he creates this land. And on day six, he, he fills it with all the beasts and the cattle and the creeping things, and including man. And then there's day seven. It just stands there all by itself. Day seven is the first day to be blessed. It's the first thing set apart as holy by God. In fact, in Genesis, it's the only thing that is sanctified or made holy. It also doesn't have this refrain like all the other days does, that it all ends with this. And there was evening and there was morning the nth day. Right? We'll come back to this for now, but the point now, all you need to see, is that this is just another example of the way that day seven is being set apart in this text. More could be said, but I, I, I think that's enough to get the point well enough. The question is, then, what is it about this seventh day that, that we should be taking from it? Why is it so important? And here's what it is. It, the emphasis of it is God has just created all of heaven and earth. And we'll demonstrate this in a moment, but it's his holy sanctuary. And he, he comes to rest in it as the enthroned king to dwell with his people so that we as his people might glorify him to live with him and enjoy him. You see, the emphasis is on worship. And we begin to see the, the point of this 
As we begin to think about and understand and see the parallels that exist between God's creation of the cosmos and the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle, it's the place of God's dwelling with his people in the Old Testament. It's their place of worship. As one theologian has said, in the ancient Near East, the cosmos was understood as a large temple, and the temple was understood as a small cosmos. So, a few examples. There's a lot here. First, there's this language of the Spirit of God. This language is uncommon in the Pentateuch. It's referenced at the beginning of creation in verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 2. It's also referenced at the beginning of the building of the tabernacle when God says that he filled the builders with the Spirit of God in Exodus 31 and 35. Also, there are these lamps, these luminaries, the stars and the moon and the sun, and they were placed in the heavens on the fourth day. And one of the primary purposes is told to us is that they are this. This is what the text says. They are to be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now, when we hear this word seasons, what do we think? We think spring, summer, fall, winter, right? But that's not actually what's going on here. This word for seasons in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is never actually used in this way. It is, it is always used in relationship to the tabernacle and to the religious festivals that God has commanded his people to do. It, it's, it's this. The sun and the moon, they were created for the purpose of marking out a calendar so that God's people would know when they are to gather together for worship. And this point gets further solidified for us when we think about the menorah and the tabernacle. And the menorah was that, that candle, and it st- stood there, and it, it shined its light down upon the 12 sh- loaves of bread, the showbread, which represented God's people, the light of God's presence shining down on his people. And both the cosmos and the tabernacle, they have the same end. The way that it ends, the language is similar In Exodus 39 through 40, as a tabernacle is finished, there's these parallels. Genesis 1 verse 31 says, And God saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. Exodus 39, 43, And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. Genesis 2 verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Exodus 39, 32, Thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was finished. Genesis 2, verse 2, God finished his work that he had done. Exodus 40, verse 3, so Moses finished the work. Genesis 2, verse 3, so God blessed. Exodus 39, 43, then Moses blessed them. Genesis 2, 3, and made it holy. Exodus 49, consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. And then if, if we were to do it, if we were to jump into chapter 2 this morning, we discover that there's these, all these other parallels between the cosmos and the tabernacle, right? I mean, think about the, the ark and the holy of holies and this tree of life. Both of them contained wisdom, and by touching the ark and eating of the fruit of the tree came death. The entrance to Eden, as we learn in Genesis 3, was from the east, The tabernacle God commanded to be set up for the entrance to be from the east. There was this tree of life in the garden 
representing the life-giving presence of God. And then again, this menorah that represented God's presence with his people in the tabernacle, well, it was to be designed in the likeness of a tree. There's this emphasis on a river flowing out from the Garden of Eden, watering all the earth, and there's this emphasis of the river of life in the eternal eschatological temple of God, as we're told in Ezekiel 47 and Revelation 22. There's a threefold structure that exists to all the earth and also the tabernacle. There's the outer world, there's Eden, and there's this garden. There's the outer court of the tabernacle, the holy place, and the holy of holies. And even Adam. Adam has the same kind of job description as the priest in the temple, the tabernacle. And later, Adam is described in priestly ways in places like Ezekiel 28. Right? So why I dump all of this onto you, (laughs) and I realize it's a lot, but it But it's simply to make this point and to make sure we see it. When God created the heavens and the earth, he created his house where he would take up residence with his people. That's the point of the tabernacle and later the temple, that God would be dwelling among us. He is with us. Now, some will say that the high point of creation was the creation of man, the creation of Adam and Eve on the sixth day. And and understandably why we go there, right? We're the only creature who possesses the dignity of having been made in the image of God. Furthermore, we're the only creature given the privilege of being blessed and given the work of, of fulfilling or, and, and, or filling, excuse me, of ruling and subduing the rest of creation. But here's the thing, this is significant. The create, our creation, the creation of man is significant only in light of the seventh day. As one author put it, humanity is not the culmination of creation, but rather humanity in Sabbath day communion with God is the culmination. Let me say that again. Humanity is not the culmination of creation, but rather humanity in Sabbath day communion with God. Humanity was created for the heavenward gaze, the human soul for a life of prayer. That, my friends, is the high point of the story. God has taken up residence in his house with his people, and we behold him. And isn't this not the culmination of all of history? I think when I preach, I read this passage every time. And I'm going to read it again. Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. This is our hope. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We're speaking of the last days, the coming of Christ. It says, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
You remember a little bit ago, I mentioned that day seven was the only day that didn't have this common refrain, and there was evening and there was morning the nth day. And if you think about what the purpose of that line is doing, what's it doing? It's just closing out each day. Every day, it's done, except the seventh day. Why? Well, because that's the eternal purpose. That's purpose of God with his people is the point for all of eternity. So sure, so when we come back to this idea of the meaning of life, here's the thing. We were made to encounter God, to behold his glory, to serve him, and to enjoy his blessed presence with us. That's the meaning of it all. The meaning is worship. This is where the good life is found, where the abundant life is discovered. This is the place where only real and lasting happiness can be truly known. Apart from intimate communion with God, there is no purpose at all. It doesn't matter what stuff we're doing or how happy it makes us. Apart from communion with God, there is no purpose. He's the reason that we are created. Encounter him. Enjoy him. Serve him. Now, we were made in the image of God for the purpose of imitating God and having intimacy with God. And so the question then becomes, who exactly is this God that we are to imitate and enjoy? Well, we get a glimpse here in verse 26. When God declared that he would make man, said, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. A singular God with these plural pronouns, us and our. And this then leads us, I mean, on the very first page of the Bible, it begins to cause us to ask this question of both the simplicity of God and also the great complexity of God. How can God be one? And this complexity. It blows our minds. One theologian that was so helpful to me early, early days of my Christianity said, God, God is so much bigger than our little pea brains can imagine. And that's a good thing because if my little pea brain can imagine this God, then we're all in trouble. I mean, he's, oh, he's beyond our understanding but he's kind to us and he begins to reveal himself throughout the scriptures and we come to understand him as this triune God. We know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. God the Father. Encounter him. Enjoy him. Serve him. Worship him. I remind our sixth graders during the communicants class each year that long before God was creator, he was father. In relationship to himself, father, son, Holy Spirit, from all of eternity, before he was a creator, he was father. 
How sweet that is. Elohim, this great king enthroned on high, exalted in glory and splendor, is our father. Full of love and compassion, caring for us, leading us, guiding us, teaching us, correcting us, disciplining us, and moving us in the way we ought to go as his children. As our Father, we learn to enjoy his generosity, especially to us as poor and needy sinners. People who have no privilege before him on our own. We enjoy his formation and we bless his name both in times of great pleasure and also in times of great hardship. We enjoy the Father and his hospitality to us as he calls us and he welcomes us in before him in worship and in prayer. And we're welcomed in because of God the Son, Jesus. We encounter him, we enjoy him, we serve him, we worship him. If we were made to encounter God, to live in his presence, to enjoy him, this is only possible through Jesus. Because we as sinners, we are cast out of the very presence of God. And we, we see this as we continue reading through our text in Genesis 3. We learn the man set up in this glorious position with God, he, he rebels against God's good command. And the results of this rebellion is devastating. It says in Genesis 3, verses 23, 22 through 24, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. <clears throat> now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man, as sinners, was no longer given the privilege of living in the presence of God. It's a devastating consequence because that's the purpose for which we are made. Well, you'll notice that this concern of God, it says, now, lest he, that is, lest man reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's why he cast him out. God would not let man live forever in this exile, separated from God because of his unholiness. He wouldn't let them eat this, this tree that would give them this eternal life. And so here already we have this hint of God having this gracious plan this, this, to bring us back somehow into the very presence of God. And so as we begin to read the, the story in the Bible through it, we begin to look for it. How is it that God is going to bring us back into his presence? And the plan and the way is Jesus Right? Jesus is the one who makes our way possible back into the presence of God. Only he can take us there. That was the purpose of Christ's coming. We, we read it in our assurance of forgiveness. Hear these words again from Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Jesus, 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, Christ, he is the gate through which we enter back in to the very presence of God. And it's a presence that we will know face to face. We will know it and the consummation, the fullness of time when the heavenly house of God and the earthly dwelling place of man come together in the new heavens and new earth. And God will dwell with us and we will dwell with him. But it's not just some future reality. It's a reality now because we enter into that reality now by faith. And thus, we come to God the Spirit. See, we encounter him, we enjoy him, we serve him, and we worship him. Because this faith that we possess, the way that we grab a hold of Christ, is a work, a gracious work that the Spirit does in our lives. He enables us, empowers us, that we might rest upon Christ as our way back into the very presence of God. He is always teaching us and moving us and convicting us that we might serve Him and enjoy intimacy with Him. We, friends, were made for a life of worship. Made for a life of a life where we encounter God. We enjoy him, serve him, we worship him. You were made for something glorious, something beautiful, something stronger and something far beyond the shallow counterfeits that the world offers to us as a source of purpose and joy. Men, you are more than the sum of your accomplishments. You are man made in the image of God. The honor that you so wish to possess is not found in false ideas of strength and masculinity, but it is bound up in your relationship with the triune God. True strength and true masculinity can only be discovered by looking to God in whose image we are made. It can only be yours as you imitate him in all of his fullness and wisdom and holiness and righteousness in strength and in tenderness in justice and in compassion in truth and in grace in ruling and submission in power and in humility. You won't find it, guys, in the bottle. You won't find it in money. You won't find it in sex. You will not find it in the success of your kids in the classroom or on the court or the pitch or the bump or the field, wherever it is that they're at. It's not there. You won't find it in the impressive way that you can dress down your coworkers or others that you disagree with. You were made 
for worship. And here's the thing, guys. You will become what you worship. And this either to your destruction and ruin or to your glory and your joy. It's your choice. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. And women, ladies, your worth, it's not wrapped up in anything but your heavenly father. You were made for him. With him, that's where real rest, true satisfaction, and lasting love is found. You are a daughter of the king of glory. That's who you are. The security that you so long to possess is found in the presence of your creator and your redeemer. With him, that's where you have your home. That is where you are set free from the pressures and the expectations to be somebody that you were never created to be. Before him, there is no shame. There is no fear. Do not believe the lies that are running around in your head, but instead entrust yourself to the one who is faithful and true. Trade in your self-hatred and run to Jesus because he loves you. He's made you glorious in him. You won't find what you're longing for in your attempts to control your life or your destiny or to control the life and destiny of your family. You won't find it in a critical spirit. You won't find it in external appearances or in conforming to the standards of the culture. But you will find it in worship of the God of creation. And when your life is given over to him, as you worship him, he will change you, making you more, more and more like him. And he'll keep you in his blessed presence for all of eternity. Ladies, glorify him and enjoy him forever. Give yourself to the king. Young men and boys, Life is more than what you see. It's more than what you touch. It's more than what you buy. It's more than what you do. The newest and latest things are always going to be a strong temptation in your life. And the reason that they're going to be the strong temptation is because you were made for something more. And you're always searching after that thing that's going to give you purpose and meaning and and the happiness that you long for. But these other things, they're never going to satisfy. And they're never going to satisfy because they're like, they're like the wind. They're just a breath in the moment. They're, they're fleeting and they go away. It's not the source of real happiness. right? And so the things we buy, the latest kicks, there's going to be new pairs next month that you're going to want. Right? The next sport, it's going to come to end in the next month or so. And besides, while you're playing it, there's always going to be someone better. The newest technology, it's going to be out of date in a year. And girls, well, well, they're made in the image of God. They were made to worship him, not you. It's okay 
to not know everything. Nobody does but God. It's okay if you're scared from time to time. Everybody is except for God. It's okay to be wrong. Everyone is but God. You see, Jesus, he's cornered the market on perfection. He doesn't need you to try to take up that space. What he needs for you to do, young men, is to be yourself in the very presence of God, to bring all of who you are into his presence, to worship him and to give your life over to him and to live your life for him. That's the purpose of your life, to know God, to imitate him, to serve him and to enjoy him. So go and do whatever it is that you like to do. Read books if you like to do it. Play sports if you like to do it. Build robots, have friends, run miles. Whatever it is, do it. But do it as one who does it for the glory of Jesus. Young women, girls. You're beautiful already. There are images and ideas of beauty that are thrown at you from every direction in our culture. Television, ads, TikTok. And honestly, here's what you can do. You can take these images and these ideas and you can just kick them in the face, kick them to the curb because they're lying to you. They're just plain wrong. You see, beauty is found of being made in the likeness of the one himself who is beautiful. Being made in the image of your creator, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And beauty is more fully discovered as he conforms you more and more into his image, a work that he is gracious to do in your life by the working of his spirit as you trust him and rest in him and imitate him. You see, you're not simply acceptable to God, like good enough to be able to sit at the lunch table with him, but you are desired, sought after, loved, so much so that Christ himself came to lay down his life to make you his own. You see, no particular friend group is going to give you lasting meaning in your life. The latest trend, it's passing away. The boy, he's not God. And your grade, it's not the mark of your value. You were made to know and to live in God's presence. That's the point. Cast yourself upon him. You were made to know him, to love him, to pursue him, to worship him with all of your hearts, with all of your minds, with your body. Take all of yourself and give it to God. Church, God has made us to worship him. God has made us to imitate him. God has made us to enjoy him. And Christ, well, he has redeemed us to worship him. He has redeemed us to imitate him. And he has redeemed us to enjoy him. And the Spirit, the Spirit calls us to worship him. Calls us to imitate him. And calls us to enjoy him.
so we must put away everything that hinders us from such a glorious and wonderful purpose. We're not going to find our glorious purpose in our slander, in speaking harsh words against those made in the image of God. It's just not there. We're not going to find it in any holding on to our bitterness and our malice as it doesn't conform or bring honor to the name of Jesus. It's, it's not there. We're not going to find it in our own visions of life in the church that compete with God's vision for his people. Because as the Bible says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. You see, all that we do, let's, let's do it for the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Because as we do this, we and others have the privilege of enjoying the purpose for which we were made. Made for God, redeemed for God, called to God, made for worship, redeemed for worship, called to worship. That's what we're to do. That's where real joy is found. Let's pray. God, we worship you. We cast ourselves before you even now. On one hand, speaking to you, but listening and receiving from you, even as your spirit is with us in our prayers to minister to us and conform us more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus. Father, we are grateful for your eternal love this love that existed um, within yourself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and that has overflowed in such a way that you just couldn't help yourself but to make us so that we might be wrapped up into this eternal love. Jesus, we are so grateful that though because of our sin it seems that we are destined for exile forever, that you, by your obedience, by the work of your cross, you have washed us, cleansed us, and brought us back into this great love that exists in you. Thank you for giving us your spirit, for pouring out your spirit that we might trust you and know you. Father, I pray for each and every one of us here that as we go out these doors and we're thinking about what our meaning and purpose is, that we would come back to the very beginning of your word where we remember the tone and theology of it all. In the beginning, God. <laughs> Help us to worship you, not in the, just the way that we, we sing or profess faith or preach or hear the preaching, but the way that we live our lives. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.